Thank you, Laura. Great job. Take your Bibles. Turn with me this morning. Colossians chapter number 1, verse number 13. Colossians chapter number 1 and verse number 13. I want you to take your outline out of your bulletin this morning and turn it over on the back side. And for those of you that have decided already that you're going to skip church tonight for the Super Bowl, I want you to notice the title of the sermon tonight. The Principles of Being a Godly Parent. Not going to say any more about that, okay? Now, turn it back over. <clears throat> you can apply that any way you want. Colossians chapter 1, verse number 13. The section of the letter to the Colossians that we are studying this morning contains one of the most beautiful and moving discussions on the uniqueness of Christ. What Paul had to say to the church at Colossae is still very relevant today. The false teachers at Colossae did not deny Jesus' prominence, but like Many of the false teachers of our day, they taught that he was at best one of the many spirit beings who bridges the gap between God and man. They didn't talk about displacing Christ, only demoting him. Some in our day would say, but I believe in Jesus, isn't that enough? And the answer is a resounding no. It matters what you believe about Jesus. The Muslim can say, I believe in Jesus. I believe that he was one of the prophets. The Jehovah's Witness can say, I believe in Jesus, but I don't believe that he is God. Mormon can say, I believe in Jesus, but I believe that he was Lucifer's brother. Your next door neighbor can say, I believe in Jesus, but I also believe in reincarnation. Let me establish for you once and for all, folks, it's one or the other. You can't believe in resurrection and reincarnation. You have to choose. They all say, in effect, that they believe in Jesus. But what they believe about Jesus makes the difference. In his letter to Colossae, Paul makes it clear that Jesus is not just prominent. He is preeminent. He really has no competitors. He is in a class by himself. Paul assumes that the greatest protection that the Colossians and the Christians today can have against error is an understanding of who Christ really is. In this passage, Paul gives us four descriptions of the uniqueness of Christ in a message that we've entitled, Why Christ Deserves to Be First Place. First of all, he is preeminent. That is what the word preeminent means, first place. He is preeminent in redemption. 
You'll remember from our last message that in Paul's prayer for the Colossian church, he ended up by thanking God for transferring them into the kingdom of light. And as we look back at verse 13, we see how God the Father accomplished man's redemption. He accomplished it in and through His Son, Jesus. He has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of His love, in whom we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins. He first of all tells us He delivered us. This means that He rescued us from danger. We cannot deliver ourselves from the guilt and the penalty of sin. But Jesus could, and He did. He not only delivered us, it tells us that He conveyed us. Some translations read, He translated us. Christians are marvelously blessed, not only on the negative side that we are brought out of darkness, but on the positive side that we are brought into the light. He did not release us from bondage only to allow us to wander aimlessly. He also, we're told, redeemed us. Redemption carries the idea of buying something back. Buying something back that has been sold. It means that we are bought back from the slavery of sin by God. And then lastly, we are told He has forgiven us. And the word forgiveness means to cancel a debt. He not only set us free and transferred us to a new kingdom, but He has canceled every debt so that we could not be enslaved again. Jesus is preeminent in salvation. He alone could redeem us, forgive us, transfer us out of Satan's kingdom and into God's kingdom and do it solely by His grace. Not only is He preeminent in salvation, but secondly, He is preeminent in revelation. The first part of verse 15 reads, And He is the image of the invisible God. The word that is translated image really expresses two ideas. One of the ideas is that of likeness. In fact, we derive the English word icon from this Greek word. In our day and age, we know that on our computer screens, we have little icons, and these icons are small pictures that represent something else. This verse tells us Jesus is a picture or a representation of God. I like the Phillips translation of this verse, verse 15, which says, Christ is the, makes visible the invisible God. The writer of Hebrews put it very eloquently in chapter 1 and verse 3 when he wrote, Being the brightness 
of his glory and the express image of his person. The other idea of this word is manifestation. That Christ is the image of God in the sense that the nature and being of God is perfectly revealed in him. In the book of John, John chapter 1, in verse 18, he says, No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, who is in the bosom of the Father, has declared him. The verse says that John has, that Jesus has declared God. Or literally, that Jesus is the exegesis of God. Jesus said of himself in John chapter 14 and verse 9, He who has seen me has seen the Father. Christ is the image of the invisible God in that he both represents and manifests God in this world. He is not only preeminent in redemption and revelation, but he is preeminent in creation. He says that he is the firstborn over all creation, last part of verse 15, for by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on the earth, visible and invisible, where the thrones are dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through him and for him. He is before all things and in him all things consist. The Bible begins in Genesis 1.1, where we are told, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. That's important because the word that is translated God in Hebrew is Elohim. And what is important about that is that Elohim is a plural word. So evidence of the Trinity, of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit appear in the first verse of the first chapter of the first book of the Bible. Later in Genesis chapter 1, in verse 26, at the creation of man, God said, let us make man in, what? Our image. All three parts of the Trinity are visible in creation. The relationship of Jesus to creation is explained by four statements that we find in those verses. First, he existed before creation. He is the firstborn over all creation. The Jehovah Witness used this as the proof text to prove that Jesus can't be God. Since it says that he was the firstborn over all creation, they say that that proves that Jesus was created. And if he was created, then God created him, which means he cannot be God. They maintain that Jesus was the image of God, just like we are created in the image of God. And that Jesus was a created man 
just like we are. And there are a lot of scripturally ignorant church members who would hear that and say, hmm, that sounds okay. But all you have to do is read the next seven words and their house of cards comes falling in. For by him all things were created. The word firstborn here has nothing to do with the act of being born. It's about position and privilege. The firstborn in a Jewish family received the inheritance. When Paul wrote that Jesus was the firstborn, he meant that Jesus had the right to claim everything that belonged to the Father, even his deity. He is the firstborn over all creation. Secondly, we are told in verse 16, he himself created all things. For by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. This verse begins with the word for. But it could be translated because. He is the one through whom everything came into being. John wrote in John chapter 1 and verse 3, all things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. The writer of Hebrews in Hebrews 1-2 says, He has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom he made the worlds. Third, we see that all things exist for him. All things were created through him and for him. Creation is for Christ in the sense that he is the end for which all things exist. The goal toward which all things are intended to move. Lastly, we see he holds all things together. He is before all things, and in him all things consist. First, this verse tells us that Jesus eternally existent. That's an attribute that can only be true of God, because he was before all things. This also implies that without the eternal presence of the eternal God in this universe, Things would literally fly apart. Another way to translate this phrase, all things consist, is with the words hold together. The perfect tense of this verb tells us that Jesus holds all things together and without his continuous action, all things would disintegrate. Jesus is preeminent in creation. He existed prior to creation. He created everything that exists. All things continue to exist for His purpose and are sustained by His hand. Not only is He preeminent in creation, but lastly, He is preeminent in the church. 
And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence. The word head means source or origin. Jesus Christ is the source of the church. It is his body, and he alone is the supreme leader of it. The word beginning can be translated originator. In Ephesians, we read Ephesians 1, and he put all things under his feet, and he gave, to, gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. In this passage, it also says that Jesus was the firstborn from the dead. The Bible claims that Jesus was the first person who was ever resurrected. You say, wait a minute, Brother John. There were other people in the Bible who were resurrected. No, there weren't. While it is true, there were others before him who had been miraculously brought back from the dead. All of them eventually did what? They died. They died again. Jesus raised several people back to life. He raised the son of the widow of Nain. He raised Jairus' daughter. He raised Lazarus. Paul in Romans said of Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over him. He is the first person to rise from the dead permanently. This implies the idea that he opened the way for others, that is, you and me. Paul says to the church in Corinth, 1 Corinthians 5, 20, But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Which brings us to the theme of this entire section in verse 18, that in all things he might have preeminence. That in all things he might have first place. This word is used nowhere else in the New Testament. It magnifies the unique position of Jesus Christ. Jesus reigns supreme in redemption, in revelation, in creation, and in the church. And Paul wraps up his thoughts on the preeminence of Christ by writing in verse 19, For it pleased the Father, that in Him all the fullness should dwell. The word translated fullness is a word that these Gnostics, these false teachers used, describe how the divine attributes of God were divided among the many spirit guides in the world. And Paul countered that teaching by saying all the fullness of deity is not spread out among many spiritual guides in this world, but fully dwells in Jesus, in Jesus alone. The venerable commentator J.B. Lightfoot wrote these words way back in 1879. 
He said, on the one hand, in the relation to deity, he is the visible image of the invisible God. He's not only the chief manifestation of the divine nature, he exhausts the Godhead manifest. In him resides the totality of divine powers and attributes. For this totality, the Gnostic teachers had a technical word, pleroma, or plentitude. In contrast to their doctrine, Paul asserts and repeats the assertion that fullness abides absolutely and wholly in Christ as the Word of God. A young college freshman at Morehouse University walked in his first day of class and sat down for instruction. The professor of psychology passed out his syllabus, explained that he would be what would be expected of the students during the course of his semester. The young student grew more and more excited as he listened to all the great thinkers that they'd be listening to and studying through the upcoming months. And suddenly the professor changed tones and he began to speak about one of the thinkers in a rather different manner. He said, when we come to the section we will cover on the subject of Jesus, you must know this, that what you've heard in Sunday school or at your church concerning Jesus is wrong. Jesus was a great teacher. He was a wise man. He did many good things. He influenced many people during his day and even unto this day, but he was not the Son of God. There was a long pause as the freshmen sat there attentively, but none of them dared to challenge this man with a Ph.D. following his name. The atmosphere was so uneasy that it seemed like hours passed with the silence so thick that you could cut it with a knife. And then a hand in the back of the room rose. One young man lifted his hand to speak. Professor called on the young student. He said, yes. The, man, the young student said, yes, he is. The professor said, now I know you've probably been told other things back home by your pastor and your Sunday school teacher, but you need to know, young man, that Jesus was not the Son of God. He was merely a great thinker, class dismissed. The students filed out of the class. One of the young men's friends chastised him on the way out of the class and said, What are you doing? This man is the professor, and you and I are just freshman students. Don't ruin this class for the rest of us. Just shut up and do your work. This young man said, This man may know a lot about philosophy, but I can, tell you that he are, I can already tell you that he doesn't know anything about Jesus. I can't just sit back in the class and let him try and convince everyone in the class that Jesus was something less than he really is. So I'm going to have to speak up. The next time the class met, the, the professor started in on his tirade all over again. He pointed out that the Bible was written by biased people who believed in Jesus 
But there were other people in history who were reported to have been born of a virgin and that Jesus could not possibly have risen from the grave. Then he said, Jesus was not the Son of God. Again, the young man's hand immediately shot up in the air, but the professor tried to ignore him, and he went on with his anti-Jesus sermon. But the young man persisted. And finally, the professor realized that he was not going to go away, and so he called on him. He said, yes, Mr. Jackson, do you have another sermon for us this morning? And the young man merely said, yes, he is. The professor turned his attack from Jesus to this young man. But he continued throughout the entire semester to stand up for Jesus. Some years later, this man, now the pastor of a church in Memphis, Tennessee, was speaking before the General Assembly of his denomination. At the conclusion of his sermon, some people came up to speak to him and let him know what a powerful sermon he had preached. When the crowd dispersed, there was one man who stood before him, and he was his old college professor. He walked up to him and hugged him, looked him in the eyes, and he said, Yes, he is. Yes, he is. We've come here this morning to say, Yes, he is. He is the King of Kings. He is the Lord of Lords. He is the bright and morning star. He is the Alpha and Omega. He is the Prince of Peace. He is God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your Son, our Savior. We thank you that we can know that he deserves to be preeminent in our lives, first place, that in fact he will accept no other place in our life other than first place. He deserves that place in our lives in our church, in our country. Father, I pray for anyone in this place today who have met, might have never accepted Jesus as their personal Savior, never acknowledged that they're a sinner, that they can't save themselves, that Jesus has already done on the cross of Calvary everything needed to secure their salvation. All they need to do is lay claim to the free gift that he offers to everyone by acknowledging that they're sinners and asking to be forgiven. Pray that they might do that today. I pray that we as Christians might be challenged with putting Jesus back at first place in our lives. First place because he deserves no less. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand with me?